This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And our honorary EGOT, Joshua Molina. Uh, I'm just one away in each category, <laughs> knocking on the door. <laughs> Today on the show, we have an interview with Dan Senor. He joins us to talk about his new book, which is the sequel to Startup Nation. It's called The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. This interview will also air on Dan's podcast, Call Me Back. We also have an interview with Gila Sachs, daughter of the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. We are keeping things on theme this week, but we promise there will be some light moments as well. Liel, you turn to me for light moments. It has That's come it has come to this. how bad things are. You know, things are strange for so many reasons, but I think one reason that everyone will find sadly familiar is the last 4 weeks have been non-stop consumption of news. News of the Jews. Oh yeah. NOTJ news of the Jews. I honestly cannot recall another period in my life, maybe after 9-11, but not even then, in which me and literally everyone I knew were just completely glued to every available source of news, sharing even stories that seemed, you know, incredibly irrelevant. And this week really has been has been an embarrassment of riches. Our plate is full. Should we just write in to some of the incredible stories the universe had sent us this week? Yes, please. Right? There's nothing else to report. We, we didn't do anything else this week. Like We just sat and read news like everyone else. There has been no life. It's so intense now because there's so many ways to get news, right? Like you can't even open your phone without like news just like seeping in through. It's everywhere. Oh my God, I, I, I need, I, f- I feel a physical need for news. And look, I, I spend a lot of time, I have the real misfortune of reading all three languages involved in this conflict. So I receive really a vast swath, a torrent, a trove, a wave. Uh, a downpour. Of, 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 of a deluge. incredible information. I want to share some of my favorite stories from this week uh, with you. By the way, on behalf of me and Josh, like thank you for the the... The verve with which you are trying to find random and entertaining news stories. Yeah, this is where my ignorance of languages really pays off. It does. I'm, I'm barely fluent in English. You don't do English. any work. <laughs> you're, you're proudly unilingual. Okay, so here's my absolute favorite story of this, or I dare say, any other week. So the Israeli website Ynet reported this week that when the IDF captured and began interrogating some of the Hamas terrorists who had partaken in the horrific attacks of October 7th, they played them eight hours straight of this. Almost unbearable on the first listen. <laughs> I'm I'm a, I'm a hardliner. I really I I support almost any means to fight terrorism. I don't know that I support this. <laughs> Can you imagine You've being bound, far. gagged, and forced to eight hours of many mamterah? This is incredible. So this was kind of like an urban legend that began when when the war started. Uh, people said that yeah we were torturing Hamas by playing many mamterah. Uh, many mamterah is a, a, a popular 
Israeli children's entertainer. The name means many the sprinkler. The name of the song is Mamtera Imatara, or loosely translated, the purpose-driven sprinkler. Um, <laughs> and I'm just thinking about this moment in which, you know, some IDF officer captures these Hamas guys. He probably has like a three-year-old and a six-year-old at home. And it's like, you know what? You know what the absolute worst thing you could do to an adult human being? Yeah, listen to this shit. <laughs> it's amazing. Love it. I feel kind of bad, honestly. I mean, this, this, should, this should not be allowed. You're like, I would do anything for war, but I won't do that. Just fantastic. Speaking of strange bedfellows, this came in via X or Twitter, whatever it's called, from Yonatan Adler. He pointed out that there was an open letter from scholars of antiquity that was in support of Israel and had been published recently. He writes, reading the list of signees, my eyes landed on the name of one fellow archaeologist, an extraordinarily significant name, Professor Dr. Ricardo Eichmann, Berlin. Hat tip for not changing your name, sir. Exactly. So that means that Eichmann's son, is that who is this? This is Eichmann's son, uh, who is, I believe, either six or eight at the time Eichmann was captured and has now uh, signed a letter in support of Israel, which A, is incredible. B, opens up all kinds of possibilities. I now want to write a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem 2, in which <laughs> Ricardo Eichmann just, you know, hangs out in Jerusalem, shops at the mall in Mamila has coffee at Cafe Hillel and the Midrachov, just has a good time in Jerusalem. Could you imagine? Like, this is like the opposite of being a Nepo baby. <laughs> Maybe it's the music thing, but now all I can hear is Eichmann's son, son to the tune of Jesse's girl. You know, I wish <laughs> that's what the other, that's, that's what the other open letter wishes, uh, the pro-Palestinian open letter. Yeah, this, by the way, I can I make a statement? I think all these open letters are very stupid. Me too. And a lot I, of angry people Writing I've a letter. signed one. Right. What is the point of an open letter? I barely read close. I've signed an open letter or two. I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Really? Why? I mean, what's the point of open letters? Oh, it's something to do. It takes a couple <laughs> of clicks. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, something like, like, like. You feel like an activist. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's so brave of you, Josh. So thank you. Isn't it? I'm a remarkable man. For Where's humanity. my EGOT? <laughs> By the way, before the internet, <laughs> were open letters like you actually had to like get them from person to person to sign? You actually had to open the open letter. <laughs> The now O and E got is for them. open letter, you know. <laughs> a lot of people think um, it's Oscar. Okay, this is an amazing one. Uh, German media reporting that the Anne Frank Daycare Center in Tangerhut, Germany, is going to be renamed. And this is in the Jerusalem Post. The move was driven by parents who found it difficult to explain Frank's significance to their children, particularly parents with migrant backgrounds, which I take it to mean like Middle Eastern new uh, immigrants to Germany. People are arguing, obviously, for and against this change. City officials remain steadfast in their decision to change the name. According to the report, the renaming is part of a broader concept that aims to celebrate the diversity of the children attending the daycare center, uh, according to Andreas Brahm, the city's mayor. Ultimately, the parents and employees wanted a name that was more child-friendly and better suited to their concept. Their needs are more important than the global political situation. That's what the school is saying. Hello, um, and welcome to the Rudolf Hess Daycare Center. <laughs> There's so much diversity in our daycare centers. Uh, Non-Jews from Turkey, non-Jews from Morocco, non-Jews from Poland, non-Jews from everywhere. We have non-Jews people from all over the world. This is how diverse we are. This is like an onion headline where you just shake your head. <laughs> Here's the problem that the report found. This is an exact quote. Frank no longer aligned with the, quote, new focus on diversity. So Anne Frank 
no longer a symbol for accepting those people who may be different from you. How did we get oh. here? <laughs> that that world icon of white privilege, Anne Frank. <laughs> that lucky bee. Um, yeah, this is freaking depressing. Also, how Isn't is it? Anne Frank? Like, Anne, the, the problem with Anne Frank is how universal she has become, right? Everyone relates to her. That's like the beauty of her and also sort of the... the 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 banality almost. No, really the problem of her, because this is, I mean, paging Dr. Dara Horn here, but this is exactly the point. The point is that we have marketed, quote unquote, uh, this one icon of the Holocaust. It's like, look, she's so relatable and she's so like you. And and when when you're in every person, you're nobody. You're really very easy to erase because there's no specific particular significance to you. People don't really understand that this is a Jew. I bet. Honestly, you know, we're making fun and it's horrific. But I bet if you talk to these Turkish immigrants in Germany and ask them to tell you three things about Anne Frank, I don't know that Jew even comes into play. I don't even think it reads as that. It's just like some historical figure that has nothing to do with us. That's that's kind of on us. If our complaint about Anne Frank, which I stand by, is that like she we has complained become, about Anne Frank all the time. She, God, she's so annoying. Just kidding. Uh, she has become such a symbol. But now to hear that she's actually meaningless to this other group of people, like the whole point is that she's so accessible. But now we're hearing from people that are like, nope, we don't get it. So I don't know. Maybe we take this as a win. (laughs) That is some serious spin. Our historical erasure is actually an achievement (laughs) for the Jewish people. (laughs) How depressing would it be to go to Anne Frank school? Uh, Look, I uh, grew up in a country where many schools were named after heroes and martyrs of the Jewish people. Uh, In my town, I had friends who lived in Ketusheha Shoah Street, the uh, Saints of the Holocaust, uh, <laughs> right right next to Lochamea uh, Getaot, the Warriors of the Ghetto, Olea uh, Gardom, wow. you know, those who were executed by the British. Those were street names in my hometown. So how depressing did, is this? Did Ad this Frank's have an effect on your young psyche? Uh, not at all. I grew up really normal and well-balanced. <laughs> what do you mean? Did you ever have a young psyche? <laughs> Uh, I believe I still have a young psyche, but but it, by that standard, I mean Anne Frank daycare centers. But by the way, it's like the, in the certain parts of New Jersey, where all the like where a bunch of Schindler Jews settled, all the street in every town is called Schindler Terrace, Schindler Way, and it's like because of that. <laughs> that must make getting around difficult. Yeah, it's a little awkward, but you're like, no, these people were saved by Schindler, and they were like, no, we're going to come to this new place, and we're going to like tr- pay tribute to him. Um, so yeah, I guess Anne Frank Way uh, is our new studio address. It's very soundproof. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Hard to believe we might have a topper, but this story, this story might be it. A woman was detained after she drove her car into an Indianapolis residential building used by an anti-Semitic group. This was on Saturday. She mistakenly believed it was a Jewish school. It, in fact, was a house used by a sect of Black Hebrew Israelites the famous extremist and <laughs> bitterly anti-Semitic group. So this happened in, in Indianapolis, where poor old Ruba Almachte, a 34-year-old, drove her vehicle into this house, which had all those stars and David on the door, believing it was uh, a home of Jews. In fact, it was a home of a hate group. And I feel kind of, again, feel kind of bad. Like you went through all this trouble, probably a lot of damage, to the car, probably like Geico's going to hike up your insurance Let policy. us say, I believe nobody was hurt. That's nobody was hurt. Is it good news, though? It's a home of anti-Semites. Well, I, I mean, mean... I don't care. Let everybody get hurt. Maybe. Maybe some of them will see the light. 
Maybe it'll be a net positive. The headlight. That, that's right. The two headlights coming out. Can you out. imagine the conversation, though, af- after this? Like, oh, my God, I am so sorry. No, no, I hate them, too. I know. This is, yeah. this is just terrible. Stephanie, you know what this reminds me of? So, Josh, I don't think we told this story, but last week, Stephanie and I uh, did an event in Temple Emanuel. You keeping, in you're keeping stories from me? Uh, we, we, we're just keeping them for the air. So we Wait, have- Is there a know, text thread I'm not on? <laughs> Never. The story you don't know is that Stephanie and I did an event um, at the Stryker Center in New York City. And we're standing there outside after the event because Jews like to talk. And we talked for so long that security said, you know, we're shutting down this building. Go, go to the street. Continue your talking in the street, Jews. Uh, and so we're standing there in the street and kind of out of the corner of our eye, we noticed this this skirmish over, um, was it was it like a parking spot basically, or like no, one it grazed was, the other's car? Basically, it was like two cars hit each other. It was unclear who hit whom. There was a lot of yelling. The first car had like a trailer attached to it. So there was like all sorts of moving parts. And it was scary. So one minute, you know, we're hearing this kind of very typical New York you, are you blind? Didn't you see my trailer? What's wrong with you, lady? And then we kind of like, you know, as soon as we realized it was not indeed a pogrom uh, brewing, but rather a dumb New York City. Which, by the way, outside of, of a synagogue, like you never know. You never know, right? It was very much uh, a moment of, of, of trepidation there. But then we kind of turned away. And literally two minutes later, we turned back and we see these two people standing very close to one another. And the woman who a second ago was yelling at this dude saying, oh my God, and is your family okay? And we're like, wait, what? what's going on here? And he starts going, you know, my grandma, she sends me all the videos. I can't watch them. And I was like, what? And he turns out the guy was Israeli. The woman was Jewish. I don't think they would have assumed they maybe had anything in common. Just like the situation pitted them against each other. And then all of a sudden you're just like, oh my God, this is the most beautiful moving thing I've ever seen. As soon as they realized that they went from, you know, I want to cut your throats to- They were taking come, pictures come of each dinner. other. They were taking pictures of each other's license plates. And then by the end, they were like, oh no, it's, it just texts me. Like, it's fine. We'll deal with it. That is it. The classic Jewish meat cute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then it turned out it was an insurance commercial. Um, and, then, and then the guy had to marry the daughter of the woman who- I would watch that rom-com. Yeah. Rom-com. Coming from Hallmark. Yiddish a bumper. <laughs> and with that, I think we've done all we can to bring you the outrageous, the absurd, the entertaining, and the Jewish. News <laughs> of the Jews. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest.
Sachs is the daughter of the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, a leading Jewish thinker and one of our favorite former guests on Unorthodox. Gila joins us to talk about her father's enduring wisdom, much of which was captured at the third annual Sachs Conversation held recently at Carnegie Hall. Gila Sachs, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I find myself thinking about your father and his wisdom and his teaching a lot and miss him dearly. And yet these last couple of weeks, I've been thinking of um, something that he said, I think something like 20 years ago. He said something, you know, anti-Semitism is a constant. It just bubbles under the surface. He, of course, had a much more eloquent way of saying it that I'm saying it right now. But basically a needful reminder that this plague is not going away anytime soon and in fact may even be getting more and more forceful. I take it that you've been reflecting about this a lot since October 7th. Yeah, and I think for all of us in different ways, it's been extremely challenging. You know, I grew up in London. I've lived here most of my life. I think it's an amazing place to be Jewish. And I've had, I guess as many of my generation have had, a very privileged upbringing. I've experienced very, very little anti-Semitism in my life. And so I always slightly struggled with, as you say, you know, my father would write and teach on this subject a great deal. He would actually refer back a lot to an experience I had as a student attending what I thought was a protest about an entirely different subject and saw how quickly kind of almost any student activism on any kind of issue could at some point turn into an attack initially against America and then against Israel, that there was a kind of flow across so much activist thought and leftist thought and so on that could end up that way. And that experience shook me and me coming home and telling him about it. I think shook him a great deal too, because he also, you know, grew up in a very, not without his challenges, but in a very comfortable, very accepting United Kingdom. And to see what we are seeing here today, and I think even worse that you're seeing there in the States, has shaken us a great deal. I don't think I really believed it was always bubbling under the surface. Um, I actually thought that in some ways that was, you know, that wasn't always a constructive way to see the world. And so this has been a shock for a lot of us. So what, what have the last four weeks been like for you personally? I feel like a lot of us are experiencing anxiety, kind of underlying constant anxiety for the first time, the sense that you can never really relax and that all sorts of things that we thought about the world were shaken. And so partly there's a kind of, I guess, a very straightforward fear and sadness for family and friends in Israel and a realization of just how deeply connected we all are that without any sort of shadow of a doubt, you know, their fate is our fate and just how intertwined we all are, without question, there's sadness at the wider picture as well. I mean, it's the scope and extent of suffering that's played out every time you, you know, click on a news website or see past the TV screen. The suffering is immense for a huge range of people and for the people of Gaza as well as the people of Israel. And it's just awful, awful to see for anybody. There's no way around it. But I guess, as I say, it's kind of layered on that fear and that sadness is quite a deep sense that, yeah, some of some of my kind of basic beliefs about the world have been shaken. I've always felt very safe. I've never felt threatened. Uh, I've never felt other. I feel very at home. And I think for Jews all over the world, we're just having to see the world a little bit differently at the moment. Just last week, you celebrated a big event at Carnegie Hall called the Sachs Conversation. I know events like this take a very long time to plan. So I imagine you started planning this tribute to your father in a very different world. Has the event changed? Has the legacy of Rabbi Sachs changed? Not in the sense that it is something different than it used to be, but do we see it differently now? Do we need different portions of it? 
look, a lot of people have been getting in touch with us and telling us how much they kind of particularly miss his voice at the moment and feel a need to um, connect to some of his messaging. I mean, you, as you touched on, yes, he wrote and taught a lot about anti-Semitism, but I think it actually goes much deeper than that. You know, he taught and lived out very strong beliefs around the dignity of difference, as he titled one of his books, and around the need for people of all faiths and of no faiths to be able to work together and make a difference in the world. And above all, an extremely strong kind of unrelenting belief that we could make things better in the world, right? He used to say all the time, we are free, we are responsible, and we can make things better. We can make the world better. And at times that are as dark as this, where it feels so exceptionally hard to see a way forward, you know, he wasn't in any way a kind of rose-tinted optimist. He was a very serious person and he saw the problems of the world very deeply and very acutely. He felt them very acutely. And I always felt that if somebody that saw the problems, saw the pain as deeply as he did, could still believe that we could make things better, you know, maybe he's right. So the theme of the Sachs conversation this year was to heal a fractured world, the name of one of his books. And, you know, what we tried to do, you know, within that event, we brought together faith leaders of different faiths to reflect on both the experience and, and their community's reflections of the last few weeks. But again, more broadly on what is that challenge? How, given the kind of world we face now, how can we each play our part in being part of that healing? You know, I think there is so much today that we see and hear about the role that faiths individually and together can play in, in, in pain. And I think there's a lot of work to be done to remind people of the role that faith communities have in making things better. And for my father, that was very deeply rooted in, in Jewish texts, in Jewish philosophy, in Jewish law. Again, it wasn't, these weren't just kind of broad ideas about making the world better. It was very, very deeply grounded in what he saw and taught as being really fundamental to the essence of, of Judaism, of Torah, and of Halakha. So could you leave us with uh, one favorite teaching, his or maybe yours, that could give us a little bit of a little bit of a chizek, a little bit of a strengthening as we were grappling with so much. Well, you know, the thing that's been on my mind recently, and we we read it in the parasha just this past Shabbat when we marked his yurtzeit. You know, you, we read the story of Avram arguing with God about the fate of the people of Sodom. And it's an extraordinary moment. You know, we get so used to hearing it that we sometimes, I think, forget just how profound it is. You know, Avram says, well, the judge of all the world not do justice. And what's fascinating is that God, according to the text, doesn't just kind of, well, doesn't, doesn't, is not upset by this challenge, doesn't just accept it, but actively encourages it, right? Invites Abraham to argue with him. And my father wrote, you know, drawing on that, that Judaism is born as a religion of protest. You know, this is right back to the very beginnings of the Jewish story. And that story begins not in acceptance of the world that is, but in protest of the world that isn't yet, but ought to be. And I think at the moment, you know, it's very hard to see answers and solutions. And really, sometimes all we want to do is scream and cry out, right? How can this be? And I think for me, you know, I, I can't always see the, you know, the next step right now, but at least feeling that, that that crying out, that protest, that refusal to accept that the world is like this, you know, that's, that was our beginnings, right? And, uh, and we have to continue that, that journey that Abraham began. Gila Sachs, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you very much.
Dan Sinor is my friend. He's also a writer and a political advisor. Listeners may recognize his name from his first book, the mega bestseller Startup Nation. And he joins us to talk about his new book, co-written with Saul Singer, called The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World, which breaks down how a country facing so many challenges is one of the happiest countries in the world. What, in other words, is Israel getting right? It's a discussion that was always pertinent, always relevant. It has just become so urgent in the wake of October 7th. Dan is also the host of the podcast, Call Me Back, which will also be running this year conversation on their feed this week. It's a coming together of the international Jewish media conspiracy. Dan's podcast is a great show about what history can teach us in present times, and you should check it out. Again, the show is called Call Me Back, and if you love us, you're going to love Dan's show. Here is my conversation with Dan. Dan Sinor, welcome to your own podcast and to ours, the great unorthodox Call Me Back crossover. Thank you, Leo. And I'm I'm actually very excited that while this podcast will appear on both of our feeds, we get to record it in person, which is a real rarity these days, and at the global headquarters. At, at the global headquarters of, of, the, of the Zionist Jewish conspiracy. Uh, I, I want to share with our listeners that we are both stuck in traffic this morning, and, and we are both a little bit late. And when you got here, you said your first instinct upon seeing traffic is... It's the pogrom. There is some kind of anti-Israel something going on. I wish I could say that was a joke, and it wasn't. I was heading north on 6th Avenue, and I was making a right on 28th, and all of a sudden, a fight broke out, basically, on 28th. All I see is people yelling and screaming and holding up traffic, and I'm thinking— it's a pogrom. It's like, it's it, this is what's going on. Someone's trying to take down a poster of a hostage child and someone else is standing in the way. I, I, my immediately, with, with not a hint of like humor, I really thought that's what was going on. You went zero to Kishnev in 2.3 seconds. You were, you were right there. <laughs> I was right there, which is, you know, a reflection of this insane, truly insane moment. And in the through. midst of, of this insane moment, you are publishing this book that it strikes me as a book that is even eerily more relevant, more prescient, more urgent now than it is. I want to read the title for the for the benefit of, of, of everyone. It's called The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. And it makes the argument, which I want to talk about at great length, because I think it's, I think honesty is the most important thing we can talk about right now, because it really gets to the point of Israel being against all odds and against anything that any rational prediction might deliver is actually doing very well and more importantly, poised to do even better, not just uh, to follow up on your on your earlier blockbuster as startup nation uh, with all these unicorns and all these, as Israelis love to say, the exits, those you know big, big sales uh, to, to American companies, but also because it's a society that actually has a whole host of components that are vital, not just for survival, but but really for, for a nation to thrive. So let me ask you the first and wildly unfair question. What is the genius of Israel and, and, and why will it be okay? We didn't start writing this book expecting to go down the path that ultimately became this book. When we would talk to entrepreneurs who were very successful in Israel today, some of these entrepreneurs take these massive risks. When I would ask them why they took those risks, among the items they would list, which they didn't list when we first wrote Startup Nation, was a sense that the country has their back. There's a sense that the country is a community, a community that argues a lot, but it's a country that is a community and the community has your back. 
So we started to explore that theme more. That's when we stumbled upon what we call this like mountain, this invisible mountain. And so let me just rattle it off because I think it, some of the data, because I think it's important. The U.S., the West, most affluent Western democracies are headed in a real bad direction as it relates to their societies. These countries are experiencing a, a demographic collapse. Populations are shrinking. They're aging and shrinking. That's the worst combination. The most innovative economies are in countries that have young and growing populations. So the fact that there are country after country after country where people are having fewer and fewer children. So the replacement rate's 2.1. So to keep your population growing, each woman has to have at least 2.1 children. And if you're below the replacement rate, it's just a mathematical fact of life. Your population is going to shrink. Most of the world is below 2.1. The U.S. is below 2.1. And Israel is over 3. It's about 3.1. But we'll get to Israel in a moment. So, so there's this demographic crash. The world has never experienced this, by the way. And then you add to this deaths of despair. Even the living seem to be checking Kill, out. Killing a, themselves. Right. Yeah. So, so in the U.S., and it's not just the U.S. now, it's the U.K. and it's other parts of Western Europe and Canada, there's this new phenomenon of deaths of despair, which are deaths as a result of substance abuse, alcohol, drugs, opioids, and suicide. A lot of very healthy working age Americans are dying in disproportionate numbers as a result of this. So I won't ask you to sort of analyze and theorize as for why so much of the Western world, despite unprecedented technological advances, despite unprecedented convenience and quality of life and really flourishing, economically speaking, is headed in such a grim direction. But I will ask you to start talking about what is working in Israel because I think it's the same, it's a different answer to the same question. So you start contrasting this data with Israel. So I mentioned the replacement rate. So Israel is well above the replacement rate. Israelis are having lots of children. As anyone who's ever ventured into a restaurant in Tel Aviv knows, there will be kids. There will be kids. There's no such thing as date night in Israel. It's just kind of understood that kids are part of every part of your life in a way. And my favorite scene is Conan O'Brien, who did this wonderful, you know, he, does, he used to do these series where he'd go travel to different countries. He went to Israel and he goes to the Waze headquarters in Tel Aviv. And he sees all these kids all over the place. And he says, he says, what is this? Are you guys running like a child labor operation here? Like, call the authorities, you know? <laughs> this is our director of product. He's <laughs> exactly, eight, exactly. But he understands the technology better than us. So. Right, right. He's got real intuition. So first, Israel's way above anywhere else in the world on being above the replacement rate to the extent that it is. B, this is partly why Israel's population is young and growing, which is key to a dynamic, energetic, optimistic, self-confident economy and society. And so when I tell this to people, their immediate reaction, where their go-to place is, oh, the Haredim. It's the ultra-Orthodox. Mm. That's, that's why Israel has so many babies. It's because the Haredim are producing all these babies and they're going to take over the, and then they, they're, their next is they're going to take over the country. And then I point out, it's true the Haredim are having lots of children. That doesn't make Israel exceptional. What makes Israel exceptional on this score is that secular Israelis, are also having as, as you write in the book, four kids has become the new status symbol in the four or five. Is yeah, how you know you've made it. Everyone from this one woman who's a very successful tech entrepreneur, fintech, she has five children and she's working a full time job. Leo Raz is a close friend and he features prominently in the book. No, known to fans the world over as uh, as the lead in Fauda. Daron. So Leo is 
in his mid-40s. He is a very successful actor. He's got the big deal with Netflix. He's in productions all over the world. And he has four children, four young children, as I always remind him, from the same wife. <laughs> four children from the same wife. And I say to him, Lior, are there, do you have any peers in Hollywood who has four little children? And he says he actually can't think of any. Are there any of your peers in Hollywood who have that many children and served in the military and are embracing and patriotic about their country and love of country? And you start to add these things up. So the secular Israelis have lots of kids. Now, there's this iron law of demography that a wealthy or wealth-creating country typically correlates with declining fertility rates. And there's a number of reasons for it, but that is basically as countries become more economically productive, they just become less reproductive. Israel's the only outlier in the world where it's it's GDP per capita has been growing, 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 and people are having more and more children. Now, this is an amazing point from which to begin the kind of exploration that that you undertake in the book, because I mean, it's obvious that having children, especially many children, is is the ultimate act of faith in the future of a person saying, I trust that things here are good and are only getting better, hence I am bringing more life into this world. And a sort of independent, dispassioned observer might look at Israel and say, I'm sorry, but none of the conditions here objectively appear to apply because you're a small country with very finite real estate, as anyone trying to buy an apartment in Israel knows. Now we have war, which sadly, last couple of weeks, we have seen ever more clearly. We have internal societal divisions, which the last couple of months, sadly, we have seen ever more clearly. We seem to have a very unstable society here, and yet it thrives. I know there are many reasons for why. They're depicted beautifully in the book. But let's start with your favorite. Why are Israelis so happy? Israel now ranks the fourth happiest nation in the world, according to the study that they released in 2023. And if you look at the other countries on the list, it's Denmark and Iceland and Sweden and It's not countries living, you know, with Hamas on the south, Hezbollah on the north, and Iran breathing down its throat. And so what I think people misunderstand by happiness is what it's really about is life satisfaction and feeling that you have purpose and the life you're leading has purpose. And I'm just pulling out the book here because there's one quote that I stumbled upon and that I wound up interviewing him for the book, which is Sebastian Younger, who's the war correspondent, very well known, written a bunch of great books. He wrote, and I'm quoting here, humans don't mind hardship. In fact, They thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary. And I think that's the answer to your question. If Startup Nation was the title of our first book, I do think of Israel as necessary nation. People feel necessary. They feel that they have they have a point, that their country has a point, that they're part of a country that has a purpose. So what do I mean by that? Mika Goodman, who you know, who is a close friend, public intellectual in Israel, you know, serious scholar. We interviewed him quite a bit for the book. And when we presented him with the, the data, Mika said, you know, with Startup Nation, you guys were basically saying Israel's doing better than it should, given all its other circumstances. What you guys are showing me now, it's not just that Israel's doing better than it should. It's that Israel's moving in an entirely different direction. The whole world is moving in this one direction. Israel's moving in the other he said, you know, Israel is a small country with a big story. There are plenty of small countries in the, in the world. They're fine. What is their mission? What's Denmark's mission? You know, it's, it's nothing against Denmark or Sweden. It's better, better herring. <laughs> improving quality of life, standard of living, good health care. These are perfectly nice goals for a government and for a society. 
But it's not a big story, right? Israel's story is a really big story. And everything going on in Israel at any given, I mean, they don't really spend that much debating the finer points of tax reform or agricultural subsidies. They're, They're dealing, who is a Jew? What should the borders be? How to deal with existential security threats at any given. Right. I mean, these are these How are to qu- balance Judaism, democracy. Those are big ideas of of biblical proportions that have implications for the past two thousand years and for the next two thousand years. And then he says, when you have a small country, the big story. It means that everyone in the country can touch it. We titled that chapter "Touching History." That you can that you have a role in shaping this because it's within reach because it's a small place with a big story. And that gives people this sense of purpose and I think makes them feel necessary. And when people feel necessary, they're inherently happier. That's a big factor. Not the only factor, but that's a big factor. So look, this conversation up until now has been probably the most cheerful conversation two Jews have ever had in the history of Jewish conversations. I wish to change that now. One thing that I was wondering as I was reading this book, the sort of great big unmentioned, which is mentioned here and there, but but I, I feel not wrestled with is the idea of faith because Israelis are also, while not all of them define themselves as religious, an overwhelming majority do define themselves as some variation on the word traditional. An overwhelming majority do anchor their lives in, for lack of a better term, Jewish time, be it kind of slowing down Shabbat. And you do write about Shabbat in the book at at length, but more as a kind of opportunity to get together with your family. Could it be that faith is sort of the secret engine that is moving this great big machine along? The chapter about Shabbat is my favorite chapter in the book. We titled it Thanksgiving Every Week. <laughs> I love, by the way, the Noah Tishbe quote in the beginnings. Like, it's a small enough country. You are expected to come home, if not for every Shabbat, and every other Shabbat, and if not, like, Watch yeah. out. Yeah. And if and if you if you only come for every other Shabbat, that's because you have to go to your spouse's parents that's for right. Shabbat. There's no like there's no like, hey, I'm doing something else that right. night. And yeah. yeah, you better have a good excuse. You know, over 70% of Israelis do some version of Shabbat being together with family, two, three, sometimes more generations together every Friday night. I just want to spend a moment on this because it's important. I ask Americans all the time, tell me a ritual you participate in with your family that you know. Most of the country is also doing the same thing at the same time. Not, not with you, but sort of with you and that they're experiencing the same experience you're having. Only Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the only one they can come up Maybe with. Maybe Halloween. Well, no. They say Thanksgiving. And then I say, okay, give me one more. And they Super say the Bowl Super Bowl. Right. Super Bowl. Which... Not, not for Jets fans. But, <laughs> exactly. You know, for, for hey, hey, that may change. <laughs> but yes. So, so they say the Super Bowl. And then that's it. And I'm, and I'm kind of floored by that. We in the United States have lost a sense of shared rituals, not only in our own family's ritual and our own community's ritual, but a sense that you're experiencing with the country. And that's when I say when it keeps the the country from spinning apart. I do think Shabbat is a big reason. There are other holidays, there are other events that we talk about in the book that do this, but Shabbat is extremely important. So secular Israelis still lead a pretty spiritual life. If you ask someone, okay, do you consider yourself religious? No. Okay. Who do you spend most of your time with? Jews. What language do you speak? Hebrew. Where do you live? The Jewish state on biblical land. And what calendar drives most of your schedule? The Hebrew calendar. So before you even actually make the conscious decision about whether or not you're religious or observant, you are leading a faith-based life. What is a faith-based life? Mika Goodman, he said something like, 
Communities don't create rituals. Rituals create community. That's right. So what is the Jewish calendar? It's a series of rituals. And what do rituals do? They bring you together with family and community a lot. And what does all the data show? The data shows that if you're with your community and your family a lot, you tend to be a happier person. Lori Santos, who's this happiness guru, she's at Yale University. She's got this podcast called The Happiness Lab. She had this line that I was struck by. She said something like, the data shows religious people tend to be happier. And then she qualified it and said, whether they're believers or not. Right. And that's what I was struck by because her point was, you don't have to believe in all this stuff. You don't have to get into existential questions. Do I or don't Just I believe in God? Just live this life. Live this life and you will be happier. Okay, so here's one really difficult question. The book's tremendous. It is certainly a great insight into not just why Israel will be okay, which is something that's incredibly difficult for most of us to kind of feel right now as it is fighting for its very survival, but also sort of its, its real innate greatness. So I want to ask an even more unfair question. How can we, for lack of a better term, Israelize our own lives here? I'm not talking nationally, policy-wise. I'm talking- You mean readers, Jews? American Jews who read this book and say, okay, well, I want to learn from this. I want to take this and implement this in my own life, in my own family, in my own community. I want two principles, three principles that I could start doing to imbue some of this genius of Israel and, and improve my own life. Mostly the, the way I get asked the question is in the context of the fight. Like, how do we fight back? How do we, how do we deal with this anti-Semitism? It's the absolute wrong prism. Right, exactly. If you're asking that question like this, you've already lost a fight. So there, yeah. you, you've, you've answered it. I, I try to give two responses. I said, the first is I hope since October 7th, you've realized, to paraphrase that, that movie, they're just not into us. Right. They're just not into us. You know, they, <laughs> they may tolerate us, some of them. Right. Some of them Sometimes. may like us, but generally speaking, if you're not sure, they're probably just not that into you. So friends of mine who are pulling all their donations from these elite colleges, you know, I say to them, I said, so you walk around these campuses, I won't name them, but we all know what they are, the top, you know, Ivy League schools, you walk around the campuses and every lecture hall and student gym and dorm building, each one after the other is named after some prominent Jewish philanthropist, which means Jews were giving gobs of money to these institutions. Now you would think in return for that, at best, they probably had some influence on the place. But at a minimum, those places would not become hostile to Jews. So if there's one like takeaway here is you could do all this stuff to try to win these people over and, and think that you're appreciated and they're just not that and into your you. children would still be forced to hide in the attic of the library as the, as the yeah. mob is outside with pitchforks. Yeah, yeah. As, as a friend of mine sent me the other day who's got a kid at Cornell said, my kid who takes Hebrew is a Hebrew class at Cornell was just sent a message from the teacher saying, for Hebrew class this week, we're meeting at, quote unquote, a secret location. Right. We will send you location. So Jews in 2023 having to study Hebrew in a secret location. If like, I mean, so I say in response, the one thing American Jews have agency over, the one thing they can control is whether or not they lead, choose to lead a Jewish life. It has nothing to do with fighting with administrations of universities and sending in statistics to the Anti-Defamation League and... You know, you can lead a Jewish life. So the the chapter on Shabbat resonates. You know, I, I care a lot about it, the Thanksgiving every week, in part because it, I know it well. I mean, I've seen it firsthand in my family that's in this Israel. I have two sisters in Israel. My mother lives in Israel. My mother and one of my sisters, because they live around the corner from one another in Jerusalem, and my sister's kids, no matter what they were doing in the world, whether they were in the army, every Friday night, 
three generations are together. We've tried to replicate a version of that in our own home. We chose to send our children to a Jewish day school. I mean, I can go on and on and on. These are things you can choose to do. And I guarantee you to come back to Lori Santos, you don't have to be a believer. Sure. That's what I say to American Jews. If if we have the data that shows what makes people happier and feel like right. they're leaving with purpose, it's there. I think Israel, it's there in extremis. It's set up for you in extremis for the reasons we lay out in the book, but you can create parts of it through Jewish living in the diaspora. Yeah, and it's not going to be easy. And it's not going to be cheap, and it's not going to be comfortable. And you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. You are, but but Zionism was never intended to make us comfortable or safe. It was intended to make us free, right. and and that's that's what we see in Israel. Yeah, Dan, thank you so much. Can I ask you a question before a- we? Ab- absolutely. Right. We barely talked about the massacre and the war. You and I talked a lot about before October seventh. You and I talked a lot about the judicial reform debates and what they meant for Israeli society. And you were quite critical of those participating in the in the protests or organizing yes. the protests. And I, I had some criticism of them, but nowhere near how you felt. What we've seen since October 7th is, I think, something extraordinary, ranging from, you know, all this debate about the Haredim being a source of the problem, according to the secular Israelis in the judicial reform debate. And here the IDF is reporting that they're inundated with requests from Haredim to enlist. Right. Now, when I say this to my secular friends, oh, well, yeah, but the, the base number is low, so the numbers aren't that big. You're missing it, the it's point. It's still unbelievable. You're missing the point. Exactly. I, I tell them they're missing the point. And even if they can enlist, they want to do other things. They want to help. Four weeks ago, Yom Kippur, there was this big brawl in the streets of Tel Aviv about whether or not there can be a mechitza. The Orthodox wanted a mechitza for public space, the dividing line between um, men and women. And everyone was yelling and screaming about, oh, this is so terrible. Jews yelling with Jews on Yom Kippur. Orthodox yelling, arguing with secular. And this is just emblematic of how the country was coming apart between the hedonists of Tel Aviv and the Haredim of B'nai Brak. It looks very different now. In in Tel Aviv, these restaurants, these hyper-trafe restaurants are all kosherizing themselves right now so that they're able to prepare meals for soldiers because many of the soldiers keep kosher. And there are so many examples. I guess my question is, A, are you surprised? And B, as much as you were critical of what the anti-judicial reform protesters were doing at the peak of the reforms, are you less cynical about them? I'll start with the easy question. Am I surprised? No, Uh, because just before this unthinkable tragedy occurred, we um, concluded reading one of the greatest works of literature the Jewish people had given the world, the book of Deuteronomy, Sefer Dvarim, which is Moses's last speech to the Israelites in which he says quite explicitly, you guys, you're really good when things are bad. When things are good, you tend to fall apart. Watch out. Don't let this happen. Uh, I am not at all surprised by the incredible response in Israeli society But that doesn't mean that I am not moved literally, physically to tears three, four times a day by reading these super small stories. It's fantastic. And it's a great, great indication of something that I'm hearing a lot from Israelis these days in a manner of kind of heartbreaking, but I think very true criticism of of how the leadership has been functioning or more accurately not functioning, said our politicians don't deserve a people as great as this. I think it's completely true. But now I want to get to the second part of your question, where I, where I grow a little bit more dark. Because again, I feel we've had 
way too much hope and optimism here. Too much light. There's no rabbinical permission for so much cheerfulness in any uh, setting like this. Look, um, I, I have said from pretty much the beginning that I don't think that the judicial reform protests have really been about the judicial reform at all. In fact, most people who I met who are committed marchers in Copland Street every Saturday night really could not tell you the first or second thing about what it is that the bill actually said. It was very much about the future of Israel. It was very much about what kind of uh, people we are and, and what our reason for being here is and how we want life to be. I am terrified, absolutely terrified, that the day after what I am certain, because I have faith, would be an astonishing victory, the arguments would begin anew, but they would begin on a very existential frame because there will be some Israelis who look at what happened on October 7 and say, well, this is proof that we can't live on our sword. We have to be much more mindful of the Palestinian national aspirations. We have to collaborate within the region. We have to listen to the Americans who came to our aid. We really have to make a lot of concessions, even if they're very painful. And there are going to be a lot of Israelis who say, guys, this is proof that PLO and Hamas are not different. This is proof that the Palestinians are simply biding their time until they could kill us all. This is proof that the nations of the world may come to our defense or may not. But even if they do, they will not change the policies like the Iran deal that contributed so much to getting us there. This is an invitation for us to grow stronger, to grow tougher, and to execute, if not vengeance, then at the very least, a public policy that is... Um, shall we say, much more Middle Eastern than anything Israel had attempted before. Now, how do you have a conversation like that? Because a conversation like that isn't about security arrangements. It's not about, well, you know, maybe we could turn Ramallah into a little independent emirate controlled by the tribe because it's all, you know, these hamulos, mm -hmm. these, these family-based yeah. tribes. Those conversations I'm not worried about. We're smart. We could get through those. It's really about why are you here? And I think I told you the story, and it's, it remains with me as probably the seminal story of this conversation. Some years back, I was at a lovely conference in Oxford organized by, by an American Jewish philanthropic organization. They brought Israelis and American Jews together, and I was sort of the sort of liminal figure on, on, on both sides. And one of the participants, who is a religious sort of right-wing famous journalist in Israel, uh, said something, and he said, oh, you know, in Bet HaMikdash, the temple. And another participant who is also Israeli, who is a prominent journalist on the more sort of liberal end of things, said, why, why are you talking about the temple? What does the temple have to do with anything? And the man who said this looked at her and said, what does the temple have to do with anything? It has to do with everything. It's what we pray for three times a day. It's the only reason we're here. I still fear that there is a substantial portion of Israelis for whom life as, as they've known it, and this is where the being a very young country also comes in, has been mostly lived in the world, by which I mean to say most living young Israelis have not experienced a war, let alone an actual war of survival. Most living Israelis have not had to live with anything resembling real anti-Semitism. Most Israelis would define success as being normal, as being part of the rest of the world. This idea Guys, no, you can't. They actually don't, as you just said a moment ago, they don't like us. Right. They are seeking to destroy us. And furthermore, our historical mission has always been to stand apart and do our thing. And it's a very distinct thing. And the thing isn't cool. 
It's not the exit from the startup, although we do need this desperately to survive. It's not the sale to Netflix. It's, it's the doubling down on Jewish life. Um, I am terrified, absolutely terrified, that a, a very bitter argument would start pretty much the day after the victory. I don't think it would be a, a, an argument about personnel anymore, I think. And at this point, even though I've, I've been sympathetic to him throughout most of his career, I hope BB goes home at the end of this. Sometimes I wonder why he hasn't already. He can't. I mean, I mean, well, I, 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 he can't midway, don't you think? I mean, I, I don't see I how. don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I would like to think that he can't, but then I see him tweeting, you know, getting in Twitter wars with at one a.m. At, at one a.m. with the security forces being like, "You never told me that there was an attack coming." It's like, don't you have a war? So I think we're going to have really, really difficult conversations. The thing that gives me a glimmer of hope, but it really is a glimmer, is that I think this tragedy has been a real necessary reminder that our fundamental foundational arguments are never going to go away. But I think it's been a reminder that we should have them at a very different register, not at the at the register of like, oh, those people. I hope that there's no more those people. We may still come to to blows, ho- hopefully only metaphorically speaking, over really important, you know, foundational questions in the future of this country. But I don't think it will be as acrimonious as anything we've seen or at least I hope it will not be as acrimonious as anything we've seen in the last couple of months. And the fact that you're seeing now, like the example I give of the Haredi, the Orthodox Jews who are enlisting or trying to enlist or do something, and hyper-secular Israelis that are trying to accommodate more observant Jews during this time of crisis, does that also, it doesn't remove the barriers. The barriers are still, the, the, the dividing lines will still be there after the war. But I feel like it softens them a little bit. I really hope so. Look, you and I have spoken about the, the Haredis a lot. Most of my family are Gurkhasids, so it's a community I know very intimately. I feel that this is a, a, a deeply maligned sector of people who kind of live in perpetual fear of their brothers and sisters because they feel that they are being targeted, wrongly targeted for their life choices, and they feel that the only real solution that would satisfy secular Israelis is the Haredis simply stop being Haredi. Yes, if they shaved their beards and served in the army and, you know, didn't care so much about their own rituals and communities, everything will be okay. But at that point, they will no longer be themselves. I think there is a world in which those great big demonstrations of solidarity on behalf of that community really inspire and soothe and heal. But there's also a world in which Israelis emerge and say, okay, look, this is an indication of why, or this tragedy of October 7th is an indication of why military service is so important. The people who saved the country at this juncture were us. And we could tell a lot of stories of very brave Israelis, including, and I have to say this, this organization, Achim Laneshek, right, uh, which is an organization of Israeli officers and army veterans, really one of the leaders of the anti-judicial reform protests, was unbelievable in every single way from running to the front line with gun, like personal handguns and fighting on October 7th to really taking all this organizational infrastructure and doing incredible things. The morning of October 7th, about 20 of them met. Some of the biggest players in the Brothers in Arms, some of the biggest players in the tech community got together and right. said, at 10 a.m., October 7th, okay, what do we, we got to, and within hours they had a few hundred people and a few hours after that they had thousands of people from this community and they literally just reached out to the MOD, the Ministry of Defense, and said, 
let's lock arms. How can we help? We have all this infrastructure. Let's get to work. It's Overnight, amazing. from being at war with the government to— It's amazing. The thing that I really fear is that after the shooting's over, they'll turn and say, okay, well, we've just proven that we are central here. Everyone else take a back seat, which is a natural response. And, and I, I pray that it doesn't happen. And honestly, I'm a little bit optimistic that it won't be. Here's another thing that, that is making me optimistic. I am wildly optimistic. In fact, kind of amazed at the response of Israeli Arabs to this. Uh, we now have polling that something like 83% of them are standing really firmly with Israel, uh, that there is very little tolerance, let alone enthusiasm, for, for any of the Hamas propaganda. You see entire villages up in the Galilee coming together and, you know, manufacturing something like 30 or 50,000 meals for the soldiers. Today, someone sent me a photo, one of my friends who's deployed, sent me a photo of a column of tanks on which, because the soldiers were Druze, they flew the Druze flag and the Israeli flag on the tanks, which was incredible to watch. Yeah. Uh, again, that doesn't go away. You see Lucia Rosh, uh -huh. uh, she's a yeah. prominent Arab-Israeli anchor, and she, soon after October 7th, just on her broadcast, she's she viewed as very critical of the Israeli government, and she just basically said, and she did it in Hebrew, Arabic, and English, and said, "That's right, I stand with Israel." That that is amazing. Here's the greatest thing, and because I really want to kind of plug into the to the optimism. Here's the greatest thing that would happen. I'll start with with one anecdote and and kind of extrapolate from there. Before on October six, the absolute worst job you could do in the army, documented, was a lookout, which is a person who sits in a base right on the border and looks at a screen because this is the surveillance. It's literally the eyes and ears of, yeah. of, of Israel. And it means that you're looking at a screen for five hours straight, every shift, and you can't look, I mean, you can't get distracted. You can't like listen to music as you're doing this. You have to sit there and look. It is a, 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 a mentally and physically crushing job. And it's like 24 seven. It got so bad that in March, only in March, the IDF had to arrest and imprison, I think about two dozen young women who said, I don't want to serve in this horrible position. This is the community of people, of, of the soldiers hit on October 7th. It's a community of people probably hit the hardest. 13 of them lost their lives yeah. right away because again, they were on the front line yeah. base. So you would think that when the new round of recruits came about, and this just happened last week or this week actually, you would think that a majority of people who got assigned to this role said, oh, absolutely not. Because not only was it shitty before, but now it's also deadly. There is an unprecedented number of volunteers, of young women to be lookouts, which tells you everything you need to know about I Amisra. did not know that. That is amazing. I think that we're going to see the same thing in every sector of Israeli life and society, including politics. I think that all of a sudden you'll see a lot of young people saying, okay, well, up until a month ago, yes, my trajectory was my firm, my company, my family, my, you know, my industry, I'm just lit a, a good life. Uh, I think a lot more people are going to rise up and, and rise up to a life of service, which is pretty much the only thing that gives me tremendous hope at, at this time. I, this, is, this conversation has been an extraordinary accomplishment because I've, I've extracted from you some, some rays of... Right. Hope. Optimism. I know. And that's uh, not what I do naturally. I will say before we go, just your point about that all, many of these protesters hadn't actually read the, didn't know the details mm -hmm. of what they're debating. I just, I, this is one story, a friend of mine who's an Air Force pilot, I won't say his name, but he told me that he was flying. There's this WhatsApp group of all these Air Force pilots, that current pilots and retired pilots. 
And they were having this heated debate during the judicial reform protests. And there was all this, I'm not going to show up to reserves and I'm not, you know. And this friend of mine, I won't say, let's just call him Itzik. I'm giving him a, a pseudonym. He said in the WhatsApp group, have any of you actually read this bill? Like what, tell me exactly, you're, you guys have such strong views, you're threatening not to serve or, or not to do your reserve training because, based on something you haven't even read. And it got very heated. How, you know, how dare you say that? And sometime later during this period, pre-October 7th, he's flying from New York City to Tel Aviv and he gets on the LL flight. And one of the pilots recognizes him because he too also is in the Air Force and they serve together. By the way, that's the definition of shkuna. Yeah, exactly. So even the pilot and the other pilot, they're just together in the yeah. cockpit. It's so, one big So this neighbor. guy's a passenger. Itzik is a passenger. So the Air, the LL pilot says, oh, come come up to the cockpit. You'll sit with us. Now Itzik points out to me, he goes, I had just taken my Ambien. I was ready to go to sleep, but I figured, okay, I can muscle through another 20 or 30 minutes. You know, I'll sit up in the cockpit during takeoff and then I'll... So he goes up to the cockpit and he's got the headset on. And he's with the one pilot and he's with the co-pilot, maybe a third. And they're sitting there. And the co-pilot says to Itzik, how dare you wrote what you wrote in the WhatsApp group, okay? And <laughs> and then- and Just what do you want to hear on an 11-hour flight, right? And you've just taken your Ambien. Like, and, yeah, I'll have the chicken. <laughs> yeah, and they're about to take off. And he starts, while the guy's taking off, he's chewing them out for the nerve and da-da-da-da. Okay, so apparently, and I don't know enough about commercial aviation, but when you're, there's, there was a flight, LL flight from JFK and there was an LL flight from Newark and Itzik was on the one from JFK. And when there's, when they take off around the same time, the, the two cockpits are supposed to communicate. <laughs> so, so they're communicating and the pilot in the JFK flight says to the pilot in the in Newark flight, by the way, guess what? We have Itzik here in the cockpit with us if you want to say hi. Itzik! And then the guy from the other plane starts yelling at him. How he's, dare you? He's got that, you wrote that WhatsApp, Matt? How dare you? So the two cockpits are yelling with each other about Itzik's WhatsApp message. Amazing. Itzik, by this point, is half asleep. Right. He just wants to, like, get on the flatbed and be done with it. And, like, the whole thing, if you had to sum up Israel in one... <laughs> it's, it's, it's that. And yet, I'm willing to bet None of them had actually read the thing. Right, right, right. Which is fine because again, we're having we're it's having It's about bigger things than just what was in the it's language. A, it's about the, what this country is. Is right. it is it a is it a democracy in Jewish garb? Or is it a Jewish is it a Jewish state or a state of the Jews? Right. Yeah, uh, right. and I think that's a really big distinction. We're going to see a lot of it. Uh, but we're going to see it hopefully done in a very different way. Liel, thanks for this conversation. Dan, what a pleasure it's been. Yeah. We should do it more often. Hallelujah. Okay, time for some mazel tubs. First up, a mazel tub to our very own Liel Leibovitz, who celebrates his birthday the day this episode drops. He will point out that this is his Gregorian birthday, not his Hebrew <laughs> birthday, aka the one he doesn't observe. <laughs> but we still wanted to shout him out. Oh, and we also want to give mazels to ourselves for winning a Signal Award. That's a big deal award in the podcast world, the Signal Award. And our Across the USA episode from Louisville, Kentucky, brought home the gold, a gold Listener's Choice Award, and silver for best episode in the religion and spirituality episode category. And our sports series, The Franchise, also won a gold Listener's Choice Award and won a bronze for best sports documentary series. So if you haven't heard them, you should check them out now. Liel, what do you got? Everywhere you turn, there are people doing amazing things, volunteering, donating, packing bags to send to Israeli soldiers, 
starting all kinds of wonderful, wonderful initiatives and showing that no matter what else divides us, and the divisions are there and they're real and we will still have to deal with them one day, but when we really need each other, we're there for each other. So to all of us this week, to all of Am Yisrael, Mazel Tov. That is beautiful. I love it. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Liel Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Daron Ruskay, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. We'd love to hear from you. Send us emails at unorthodoxtabamag.com or leave a message on our listener line. 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom, friends. Shalom.